Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the medical literature, but you don't have time, don't know where to start, and you'd like someone to do the legwork for you? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome to another episode of Journal Spotting. We're the podcast that keeps you up to date with the medical literature and helps you get to grips with some of the more challenging topics in medicine. Today, we've got an exciting episode planned as we chat to the lead author of a recent trial about cirrhosis and albumin, published in the New England Journal and covered in this month's Journal Roundup. I am Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and today I'm joined by internal medicine trainee, Dr. Katya Florman. Hello, Katya. How are things? Maybe you could share with us what we're going to um, cover today. Thanks, John. I'm good. I'm really excited about our episode today. We are interviewing esteemed hepatologist Dr. Louise China, Senior Clinical Fellow at the Royal Free Hospital London. Louise is the lead author of the long-awaited ATTIRE trial published last month in the New England Journal of Medicine. This trial investigated the use of albumin infusions in hospitalised patients with cirrhosis. We're going to chat about decompensated cirrhosis, the role of albumin in the management of these patients, and why this trial might just be practice changing. We covered this trial in our March journal roundup, which if you hit the subscribe button, it can be sitting in your podcast feed after the episode. Or you can head to our website, journalspotting.com, for the entire back catalogue of evidence-based pearls. Before we start, don't forget to rate and review us if you're enjoying the podcast, and do get in touch via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or journalspotting at gmail.com if you've got some feedback or if you'd like to see something on the episode. Now, we hope you find this interview practice changing. Great. Now let's get on with the interview. Dr. Louise China, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. Um, Very exciting to have you here, Louise. Um, Now, before we get on to the exciting topic of liver cirrhosis and albumin, perhaps you could tell us and the listeners a bit about yourself, maybe share what you're maybe what you're most excited about doing now that lockdown is easing. (laughs) Okay, Um, so I'm currently a senior clinical fellow in hepatology and liver transplant at the Royal Free Hospital. Um, I finished my training last September and um, all of my research has been at University College London. I finished my PhD last year and my research interests are in um, the complications of advanced chronic liver disease and particularly infection as Unfortunately, most patients um, with liver cirrhosis die of infection or, or its complications. So it's a very important topic in hepatology. And what was the second question? <laughs> what, are you, what are you most excited about what... now that lockdown's easy? <laughs> if you can see beyond that. Uh... I, I mean, eventually going on holiday somewhere hot and um, maybe being able to start doing some scuba diving again as that's one of my passions so yeah I'd love to go away somewhere that's got a 30 degree water temperature (laughs) (laughs) and see some um, see some pretty fish and coral under the sea that might might end up being in 2022 might not it well hopefully not too far away I like the idea of exactly 30 degrees or higher water temperature (laughs) (laughs) not taking anything lower like above 29 degrees or below is is starts to get too cold for me (laughs) that's when the wetsuit goes on (laughs) awesome so before we dive into the details of your paper in the new england journal louise i thought it would be helpful if you could remind the listeners what exactly decompensated cirrhosis is and what what that phrase means 
so obviously liver cirrhosis is when a patient has got a lot of scar tissue in their liver and that can often go undetected and without any symptoms, clinical signs or, or even um, any abnormalities on blood tests. But um, decompensation is when the patient sort of goes over that cliff edge of being well and uh, clinically manifests um, symptoms of advanced chronic liver disease and portal hypertension. And, and those the things that manifest are jaundice, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy and portal hypertensive bleeding. Um, and those, those things are, are the markers of clinical decompensation. And then you also see biochemical decompensation on blood tests. So low albumin, prolonged INR, um, high bilirubin. That, that's that's my definition of decompensated cirrhosis. That's very clear. Thank you. I think that's very helpful before we um, talk a bit more. And your study was looking at albumin in decompensated cirrhosis. And can you explain to us a bit about why albumin is important in cirrhosis? Um, so albumin's made in the liver. So naturally, levels of albumin are lower in patients with um, advanced liver disease because the liver is not making enough. It's also consumed in any acute illness um, and in anyone who's acutely unwell from, from liver disease or, or other diseases. Albumin gets damaged when it's circulating in the body. So, so al- and albumin infusions themselves have been used by um, liver specialists for over 70 years and are widely believed to be the best at reducing abnormal fluid buildup caused by cirrhosis. And there are also many preclinical studies that have emerged in the last 10 to 15 years, which support an anti-inflammatory or an immunomodulatory role for albumin in patients with advanced liver disease. So um, that, that's where that's where my interest stems mm. from because I'm interested mm. in in infection and immune dysfunction in patients with decompensated cirrhosis. So I, I guess the biggest question surrounding albumin's use um, in recent years has been: Can you use albumin as a medicine in mm-hmm. patients with liver disease? Um, and we know that patients with low albumin levels have got an increased risk of death when they're hospitalised. So, um, yeah, there's lots of investigational roles in how albumin might be used to benefit these patients. And we haven't got any hugely beneficial medicines for patients with um, advanced liver disease, especially when they're hospitalised. Their outcomes are very poor. Mm. And um, we sort of, as general medics, know albumin sort of, uh, uh, we give it after large volume paracentesis or treatment of SP, S spontaneous bacterial peritonitis or in hepatorenal syndrome. What's interesting about your paper is it mentions more prevention of infection and sepsis mm. and AKI. What's the theory behind, behind albumin having a role in, in that yeah, so it, it's really looking at albumin's use as a medicine um, and the the theory behind it. And if people are interested in going back to um, reading about what where the study came from, uh, the research group that I've worked with and my supervisor, Alastair O'Brien, has uh, looked at, at, in depth at prostaglandin E2 in patients with um, a decompensated cirrhosis and how um, raised prostaglandin E2 levels can dampen the immune response in patients uh, who are acutely decompensated. And um, his work was published in Nature Medicine in 2014, and um, that that showed that albumin um, could potentially um, reverse the effects of PGE2. 
So albumin is like a big mop in the body. It binds prostaglandin E2 and can catalyze its breakdown. And so therefore, the proposal was that could albumin improve the immune response by decreasing the amount of prostaglandin E2. And that was how Atiyah came about. And and in that previous work, Alistair found that a a cut-off serum albumin of below 30 grams per litre identified the most immunosuppressed patients. And that's why in Atiyah, we gave patients um, albumin based on their serum albumin, and the aim was to increase it to above 30 grams per litre cutoff. Um, and that's quite different to um, how we get, we've given albumin previously, because it's just been on a weight-based dosage, not looking at individualising the patient's treatment regimen. Did, did so you call did you call albumin a big mop? It's a big the, mop. That's yeah, the theory. It's a big, it's a big protein mop. So a big it's got, protein um, mop. <laughs> It's got two main binding binding sites and then other sites on it that um, will, will bind smaller ligands. Um, and most of the the lab work that I've done, sort of the, the bench to bedside stuff, um, has been looking at albumin's um, binding capabilities. Mm-hmm. And actually, even and there's more work over recent years that's looked at um, an effective serum albumin concentration. So there could be two patients or two people. Um, who've got the same albumin level in their blood, mm. um, but one one person's albumin might not work as well as another person's albumin. So it, you know, and that can that can affect um, how albumin binds and carries drugs around the body or, or other ligands, and and therefore it, it manifests its roles in um, its antioxidant properties and um, and the way that it could perhaps act um, to bind and break down certain ligands that might have an impact on the immune response that's so that's so interesting i really like this concept of albumin as the mop and i think that's really informative for listeners just to understand a bit more deeply about why it is so important especially for us general medics i think that also brings us nicely onto the attire trial which you published last month in the new england journal of medicine so do you do you want to speak to us about what question you set out to answer in the trials specifically? Yeah, so um, as, as I said, there's been more and more small lab studies um, proposing albumin to have an anti-inflammatory or an immune modulatory effect, but but without um, rollout into, into a larger scale real world setting. So uh, the main question that Atiyah aimed to answer uh, was do repeated 20% albumin infusions to increase serum albumin level to greater than 30 grams per litre throughout hospital admission in cirrhosis patients reduce the incidence of infection, renal dysfunction and improved mortality as compared to standard clinical care at 35 hospitals in England, Wales and Scotland. So, so that was the overarching aim of the study and it's, it was all about um, preventing patients from becoming more unwell and developing um, infection and the complications of infection when they were admitted to hospital with decom- decompensated cirrhosis. Mm, nice. And um, you've mentioned a little bit about the the trial design there. You said it was we're comparing standard of care. What was what was standard of care sort of defined as? So um, it it was anything that any care that would have been given to the patient had they not been involved in the trial, and we didn't really regulate any of that or or tell clinicians what they had to or had not to do um, other than that they could not give 
patients albumin infusions to increase their serum albumin mm. um, <laughs> if, if they're in the standard of care arm yeah. but um, as you mentioned before standard of care for these patients for example if they're undergoing large volume paracentesis does include albumin infusions mm. and it it would have been unethical to obviously not give any albumin in the standard care arm so that was one of the challenges of the study because it was open label um, so um, we did allow albumin infusions in the standard of care arm, but only for current um, evidence-based international guidance recommended indications. And that, that was large volume paracentesis, um, SBP and uh, hepatorenal syndrome. So that required a, a, a bit of regulation and, and really a lot of buying from site clinicians. So we, nearly, we really needed equipoise from from physicians because there has been sort of growing albumin use in, in um, cirrhosis patients in recent years, which isn't evidence-based. So um, we really needed buy-in from clinicians mm. that they would only give albumin as part of um, international guidance recommended indications. Mm. So only those three in the standard of care arm. So was that um, but otherwise we didn't, we didn't regulate anything in the standard yeah. of care arm it was how the clinicians would have treated patients otherwise and the nature of a randomized control study is that you know there's going to there's going to be um slight variations in clinical practice site to site mm. but that evens out in the randomization process and mm. um the sites where uh, there was a uh, stratification in the randomization so mm. each site roughly got the same amount of patients and um, randomized into standard of care or or the albumin arm so mm. that, even variations in clinical practice should come out in the wash in a big randomized study Did, was there quite a big departure from clinical practice then for a lot of the clinicians who were involved because i mean I, we see frequent albumin use as you said I'm, I'm wondering how you know how common that is so, I mean, before we started the study, we um, we were quite clear to when we were contacting sites, we were quite clear what the study involved. And actually, I think a lot of clinicians in the UK do follow standard international guidance and albumin prescriptions quite regulated. But there, some centres do use a lot more albumin um, than others. And I know where you work, Katia, <laughs> um, there's quite huge albumin use. Um, that it's not necessarily um, as part of those standard guidance uh, guidelines. So um, I don't think there was variation in the albumin use in the studies that recruited for attire, but some sites probably didn't take part because they, you know, the few people that, that didn't necessarily want to take part might have been because they didn't, they wanted to, use albumin outside of any sort of evidence base really interesting you've um so you've alluded to it already slightly louise um i just wanted to make sure i'd caught the reasoning behind the threshold of albumin so you had two you had two arms one yeah. which was standard of care and one which was the kind of intervention arm which was albumin infusions yeah and I, the, the the target that you were asking the intervention arm to reach was an albumin above 30 is that right and and I think you said well, earlier why that that was, but what what was the rationale behind the thirty? Um, so first of all, first part of your question, the the target we actually asked clinicians to target a serum albumin of thirty five, because we wanted patients to have a serum albumin of over thirty. That was our target cutoff, and the reason um, that we did that was because 
there was a, a very large study in ITU patients, not, not liver patients, but any ITU patient with sepsis called Albios. They had the same cutoff of 30 grams per litre and they didn't achieve their cutoff. They didn't achieve patients getting to that serum albumin level because they were asking physicians to target 30. So we asked clinicians to target 35 grams per litre um, in order for us to get to the serum albumin level of 30. And the second part of your question. I was just asking the, if you could just. The albumin yeah. level, yep. So, oh. um, so in the bench side work that Professor O'Brien had led previously, he identified patients with a serum albumin level of below 30 grams per litre as having um, the, the most immunosuppressed plasma in the in the and cells in, in the lab and found that um patients plasma when they'd been treated with albumin infusions to increase their serum albumin above 30 uh, caused a less dampened immune response in the test tube basically <laughs> so, yeah. that makes trying sense. to simplify the explanation so that's where the 30 came from and I mean I think you need a you need a target. Um, and that 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 was why that cutoff was um, was targeted because of the previous lab work um, mm. look, looking at um, a defective immune response. That's really clear. Thanks for explaining that. And um, I think that brings us nicely on to the results of the trial. What, what for you were the sort of key headline results that you found? So the intervention and the way that we designed the study worked. So the targeted albumin group received 10 times more albumin um, than, than the standard of care group, which was a relief because we were a bit worried that there, there might be a lot of albumin given in the standard of care group. Yeah. And um, and that showed that that showed in the patient's serum albumin level. So the, um, the albumin treatment groups, serum albumin rose to 30 grams per litre or more quite quickly. So within three days of, of coming into the study, Whereas the standard care group, um, the average albumin level was around 25 grams per litre throughout the study. So the intervention was effective at doing what we wanted it to do, at increasing the serum albumins. However, however, the intervention had no impact on our primary composite outcome. So in the targeted albumin group, 113 out of 380 patients developed one of the primary endpoints, which were infection, renal dysfunction or death. And in the standard of care group, it was 120 out of the 397. So um, there, there were no differences in the composite primary endpoint between the two groups. So it didn't work, even though the, the protocol and the intervention did what we wanted it to. And and then, you know, one of the big outcomes for me as well in the study was that a, a third of these patients died within six months of initiating treatment, which also reflects how unwell this patient group are. So, yep, there was no, no evidence mm. that, uh, of benefit of targeted albumin therapy. Was it um, quite a surprise that there was a negative outcome then for the trial? Were you expecting something quite different? I think I, I, um, I'm quite a, a pessimistic negative person. So <laughs> I think uh, um, Professor O'Brien, I think, always thought that... It, that it would work um obviously mm. otherwise um it wouldn't have pursued the idea and embarked on the study and um and whereas I'm I always think that nothing's gonna work so um yeah I I don't know 
actually didn't know. I remember the day we went to the clinical trials unit at UCL to have the unrevealing of the uh, statistical analysis. And um, it was just a question that we asked. And I I wasn't sure whether it was going to work or not. But um, yeah, so I wasn't I wasn't massively surprised. But like I said, that might be my pessimistic nature. (laughs) I suppose it begs the question, Louise, why you think it didn't work? I think these patients are very unwell. And there has been one other large study in pre-hospitalised patients that has suggested that there's lower rates of infection with albumin infusions. And that's that's the answer study. Yeah. Anyone's interested in having a read about that, that was published in the Lancet a couple of years ago. So I think that these patients are just too unwell for any single intervention to, to magically change their outcomes yeah. even and actually I've um this has not been published yet but I've done I've repeated a lot of the lab the preclinical lab work and some of it does still suggest a benefit when you look at these patients plasma in the lab but this obviously doesn't tra- translate to improved clinical outcomes and I think that's really that's probably one of the most important things for the world of hepatology to learn from this study that you can't start changing your clinical practice based on very small numbers, yeah. preclinical studies, non-randomized controlled trials, and that you need to look at what's happening to the patients in the real world and not your own intrinsic beliefs based on studies that are not large enough and not powered to look at clinical outcomes. Yeah. Do you, th- do you think um, if the um, albumin was given at a different time or if you'd measured the effects for longer than the 14 days or time to discharge, you might have seen a different result? No, I, I, no, I really don't. Not in this group of patients. The study was so flat and we, we had predefined subgroup analysis and there, there was just absolutely nothing. And, and I think the whole point of the study was prevention and for patients becoming more unwell so they were recruited very quickly after they came into hospital which was I mean amazing really when you think about these patients were coming in very unwell in busy NHS hospitals it was a non-industry funded study with CRN research nurses driving it and um, so that the the patients got in early while they were still on the ward before they developed their multi-organ failure and got that got their album in early, and um, I, I can't see that giving it for longer or giving it later or changing the, the dosage. Um, I can't see that it would have worked because there was just no signal any looking at any the study in any way that um, it had provided a benefit. So. Mm. The only benefit it provided was increasing their serum albumin levels. That was the only thing that, that changed. I mean, and also the and you know the, one of the biggest I think outcomes of the study is that there were more serious adverse events in the albumin treatment group, um, with regards to fluid overload. So that's uh, by giving too much albumin, we're not just doing no benefit. We're we're probably doing could be doing some harm in some patients. So. I think that brings us on nicely to maybe discussing how the study findings translated into clinical practice. We quite like on the podcast to cover things that we think might change people's practice or make them think a little bit more carefully about what they're doing on the wards. How do you how do you think the attire trial and the results might feed into clinical practice? So I think the the biggest thing that attire is hopefully going to stop people doing is stop the the growing non-evidence-based use of albumin in this group of patients. As I said, albumin's expensive and there was evidence that it may actually cause some patients harm. 
So we should we should stop using albumin outside a strong clinical evidence base. And um, I mean, we've got big egos as clinicians sometimes. And I think that people have interpreted small studies in their own way and decided that this is what they, they're going to do. And, and that shouldn't be happening. Um, and this study highlights that no matter how interesting something is in the lab, it doesn't necessarily translate into clinical practice. And, and we need large number clinical randomized clinical trials before we start giving patients new treatments so where does that leave us with regards to albumin and um decompensated cirrhosis when do we have what do we have evidence for its use in well um that's a very good question and i think really quite controversial at the moment especially if you go back to many of the the older albumin studies that we really base our practice on. There is an evidence base for the use of albumin to prevent renal dysfunction in large volume paracentesis mm-hmm. um, and, and in spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And that's currently standard of care most most places in the world. So the albumin will still be used for those indications. But I think that um, there's been a, a growing use of albumin as a fluid resuscitator in decompensated cirrhotic patients. There's not a good evidence base for that. And I think an albumin is expensive. Depending on your NHS trust procurement, you can pay up to £55 for a bottle, a bottle of 100 mils of 20% albumin. And that's wow. as compared to you know 70p for a litre of Hartman's. Mm. Um, so, you know, should we really be giving the patients something of which, for which there's really not much evidence base for when there's, there's a, an alternative? Would you say there's not much evidence then also for giving albumin to patients who already have sepsis and acute kidney injury? Or is, do we need more studies looking at that? So there... Is no, there's no. I mean, we had we included patients with infection in in attire. So some patients already had infection at baseline, okay. um, and that they they did not benefit from this intervention. There have been other studies that have um, looked at albumin in sepsis in liver patients. And um, the largest recruiting one got stopped early because they had an 8.6% rate of pulmonary edema. Um, So absolutely not. There's not a good evidence base for using albumin in in a septic patient with liver cirrhosis. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't say there needs to be more studies. I think that the studies that have been done are showing that it doesn't work and it can be dangerous. Okay. That's very, very helpful. And just on a similar topic then, while we've got you here on our podcast, we've talked a lot about albumin. Do you have any other top tips for general medics managing patients with decompensated cirrhosis apart from the, from whether to give them albumin or not? Yeah. You know, these <laughs> patients can be very sick and they can be quite a challenging cohort for the general mm. medic. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there a challenging group of patients to look after because they're so unwell and I think my primary top piece of advice is that paying attention to the detail and the basics of clinical assessment and management in these patients is so important so just number one assessing fluid balance properly and then when they come through the door um, and don't be don't be afraid of giving these patients intravenous fluid of any sort if they're intravascularly deplete 
Um, and just basic, very basic things like checking to see if someone's constipated. So mm. giving an enema to a patient who's drowsy with grade three encephalopathy um, can, can totally reverse their situation. So it's such a, a basic assessment and intervention that is missed a lot. And tapping ascites when someone comes through the door, an acidic tap should be done at the same time as a blood test. It's often easier than doing a blood test. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's it's the paying attention to the early simple details prevents progression to multi-organ failure in these patients. And if, if a good clinical assessment is done with resulting actions when someone comes through the door, you'll stop them developing established multi-organ failure. Because when these patients start to develop extrahepatic multi-organ failure, some that, that challenge is often irreversible. That's really helpful. Thank you. There's like a pro forma from the British Society of Gastroenterology, yeah. which is like kind of an idiot, idiot proofs guide to managing decompensation. Is it decompensation? I can't remember, but I always yeah, find it's, it's there's, there's a BSG Basel decompensated cirrhosis care bundle. That's the one. And if you can't quite remember um, what things you need to be checking when these patients come through the door, it's a decent checklist and reminds you of the you know the different components that are important to check like seeing if someone's constipated or you know the basics of assessing renal function so yeah that's a good that's freely available if you just type decompensated cirrhosis care bundle i think it comes up quite quickly on google and um, it's a free to download word document i think Oh, very, very helpful. You've talked to us a lot about this study and all the work that came before it. It's, um, it's been really, really interesting. Do you have any advice for medics and maybe especially women entering the world of academia and clinical trials and, you know, things that you'd wish you'd known at the beginning or things you've learned along the way that have been helpful and you'd like to share? Um, first of all, you don't have to undertake a PhD or an MD to get involved in clinical research and it should really be part of everyone's everyday work so find out what studies are recruiting in the department you're working in I think everyone's had more exposure to recruiting to, to clinical studies in the pandemic so um, find out what studies are recruiting get yourself trained and on a trial delegation log and involved in screening and recruiting patients and you can do that as part of your everyday practice it's not research isn't for the select few um, and then my top piece of advice, uh, go around and speak to many, many different supervisors. Don't just uh, get involved with being supervised by one, the first person you speak to and interview their previous students. Yeah. <laughs> because then it becomes very clear who's a good supervisor if you speak to who they've supervised before. Um, and you need someone who um, whose main priority is your success and lets you be free to explore some of your own ideas. And, and also, I think maybe slightly more relevant to women but definitely relevant to to men as well that have a get a supervisor who's got a, a good life outside of their research so family life and lots of other interests because then they'll be understanding and supportive of yours yeah so those, those are my I think those are my top tips that's but, really um, nice and I think maybe particularly for women but maybe also for some men as well um try not to suffer with imposter syndrome which I think maybe women have got a slight tendency to do a bit more <laughs> so you have some confidence in yourself and some belief in yourself uh, I find that really quite challenging sometimes but um 
yeah. <laughs> it is a common, I think it is a common problem. The more people I speak to, the more I hear about it, but that's very, very useful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Louise. Before we, um, before we wrap up, we quite like to just leave our listeners with one or two kind of take home key, take home messages that you want to make sure that they really sort of have taken from the podcast. What, um, what would be your sort of two key take homes? So, so firstly, with regards to the attire study, there, there's no evidence for serum targeted albumin infusions in patients hospitalized with decompensated cirrhosis. And my second take home, pay attention to detail when you're admitting patients with um, decompensated cirrhosis to, to, to hospital and um, attention to detail will prevent patients from developing um, established multi-organ failure. They're great. Those are great take homes. Thank you so much. <laughs> And yeah, this has been a really, really informative chat about the study and also everything to do with albumin, the theory behind that and management of patients with cirrhosis. It's been really great to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Louise. And congratulations on this amazing body of work. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks. You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Special thanks to promotion team Abby and Isabel, logo designer Natalia Florman, and animations expert Costa. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.